Welcome back to the preview of Genesis chapter 6 and 7. And there are very, very primitively four sections of this reading. There's the cause of the flood. There's the covenant in the flood. There is the coming of the flood. And there's the consequences of the flood. And that can be a very easy way for you to kind of break down what's going to happen. I would be shocked if any of you have not heard uh, some of these stories before. And we we see a, a story that we're all familiar with, one that we've seen painted on the nursery walls, and it's the it's Noah and the ark, right? So there's a there's the cause of the flood. Why did God even bring the flood to begin with? Well, he says that that uh, the wickedness of man was so great on earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And that is the, the reason he makes this decision. He says, I will blot out man whom I have created. I will blot them all out, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so the cause is that sin and wickedness has grown so deep. Now, remember, this is connecting. This is all working together in all that we've read so far. So in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything good as it should be, and there is no sin. Genesis 3, there is sin. It comes into the world. Satan says, you won't surely die. They sin under that belief, and then what happens immediately? They die. And so this is uh, this section comes from what we've read yesterday in Genesis 3 and 4, saying, well, sin and with it brings death. Once it comes into the world, how fast does it spread? How great are its its uh, its effects well we see that only a few years down the line we get to the point where sin and wickedness has grown to such an extent that that the the whole earth has to be uh, purged of of all of the wickedness in it and god makes this decision he doesn't make it lightly but he sees that the wickedness is so great and so vast that he he as a just god must judge mankind for its sin so that's the cause of the flood. And then we see the, the covenant in the flood. Noah is described as a righteous and blameless man in his generation, somebody who walked with God. And because of that, God decides that even though he's going to judge all these other people, he's going to give Noah and his family, eight people in total, and some animals and, uh, and, and birds and things, that they're all going to get a chance to, to live through this entire flood and make it out on the other side and start fresh on a new on a new planet uh, the, the whole planet just to themselves and so he tells them that the way you're going to survive this flood is by uh creating this ark creating this ark and this ark would be essentially the salvation of noah and his family and really the salvation of all mankind and we can see that, you know, you might ask yourself, why does God not just kill everybody and then start fresh with a new Adam and Eve, right? With He just creates somebody out of dust like he did uh, before. And I think the reason is because as sin enters the world, now God is acting his plan of redemption. He is acting his plan of redemption, and he desires to redeem the, the world and its people by using Noah and his family rather than creating it all from scratch. So he has him create this uh, this this ark, and that will be their salvation. They'll ride out the storm in the ark. And he says, I will establish a covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And 
you will be spared. And Noah did all that God had commanded him. So this is what's called the Noahic covenant. This is a covenant God made with Noah. And then eventually when we see the rainbow, uh, we, we see in addition to this covenant that God will never do what he did again. He will never flood the earth again. So you have the cause. Wickedness had grown so great. You have the covenant with Noah that he would spare them by the ark. And then you have the coming of the flood. So in, in this section, Noah is preparing the ark. God gives him the measurements and how he wants him to make it and exactly how wide and long it would be and, and that it would have rooms. And one interesting thing that I want you to know, and I think this may be the most important verse in the entire uh, section, uh, the entire Genesis 6 and 7, is God tells Noah in instructing him what to do in making this uh, this ark, he says in Genesis 6.14 to fill it inside and out with pitch. And I think this is the most important word in the entire in the entire two chapters. And you may say, well, this is silly. Well, the word pitch actually is the same word that in other places in the New Testament is used and translated as the word atonement. So in the Old Testament, the word atonement means to, to cover with many applications. And so when we see the word pitch come up, which is, you know, you take the wood, the wood still had holes and cracks in it. It needed the pitch so that it wouldn't also sink. So really, the ark without the pitch is not salvation at all. If the ark has the pitch, it is sealed, it's watertight, and it protects Noah and company from the, the waters of judgment that are coming. And, and we see here a type, a symbol that's preparing uh, the reader to eventually encounter Christ and what Christ would do. So in the same way that the pitch seals the salvation from the judgment waters for Noah and his family, in the same way Christ covers us and protects us from God's wrath against sin. And this is a, a beautiful picture that has us, even in the Old Testament, looking forward to what Christ will do in the future. So you have the cause and the covenant and the coming of the flood. The, the flood comes and we, we see that it, it for 40 days and 40 nights, it both rains and the, the depths open up and water bursts forth out of the ground. More water came from the ground than came from the air, uh, than, than came from rain. And it did so for 40 days and 40 nights. And for the entirety of the, the flood on earth, it lasted for 150 days total. So, so basically half of a year, there is water covering every terrestrial surface, flats, plains, mountains, everything is covered by water for uh, half of, of the year. And in so doing, God cleansed the whole earth to start anew. And so the consequences of the flood that we see there at the very end uh, of, of this passage is that everything died, all flesh died, birds, uh, uh, birds, animals, people, everything. It says every living thing that had the breath of life died and it was blotted out. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. All flesh died except for Noah and those who were in the ark. And so you may ask, well, what an interesting and weird and kind of depressing story that God did all of these things, that he, that things got so bad that he essentially killed everybody and did so 
to uh, as a result of their sin. That's not like a fun and wonderful story. And I will admit that it is weird that we paint this on the walls of nurseries. This is not a happy-go-lucky story. This is a very, very sad story about how bad the earth had gotten. But in the middle of the story, there is a glimmer of hope. There is a type that looks forward to Christ. And I think we can see it in that word pitch, in the word pitch. So if you look at the story from a 30,000 foot view, what happens is that everyone who has sinned is subject to judgment and the wrath of God. But those who are righteous are given away into salvation. Everyone who's sinned is subject to judgment, and everyone who is righteous is given salvation. Well, we know that no one is righteous, not even one person, but we have the guarantee that Christ has given us his righteousness. And so this looks forward to what God is going to do in the future. And we will never again, because of the, the rainbow promise, we will never again be subject to the, the floodwaters of God's judgment again. But God's judgment is still coming nonetheless to those all those who are sinful. And in this story, we like to see ourselves as Noah, as if when we if we were to live at that time, you know, we would have been on that boat. And we would have been Noah. But likely, when we read the story, we should probably see ourselves more as all those who didn't make it on the ark, who were not considered righteous. And 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 in doing so, I think it takes a level of humility to approach this text and say, what is really my state, the state of my heart without Christ? Is it righteous or it, are, are the thoughts and intentions of my heart uh, not where they should be? And so I want us to remember that as we are going through this text to look at how salvation is, is demonstrated. I've heard it said that the New Testament is God's salvation in words, and the Old Testament is God's salvation in pictures. And this story surely gives us a picture of God's salvation. There was no salvation until God made a way, and He secured it. And I, I am thankful to God that He saw me, and even in my sin, He was gracious and forgiving of, uh, of me, and He saved me. I was in danger of those judgment waters, but he pitched the ark inside and out, brought me graciously on board and shut me in and, and provided a way of escape when there was none. And so uh, this is uh, what, what I want you to remember for this passage, uh, that God provided the salvation and he secured it just like he did for Noah in the ark with the pitch. There is one last thing that I need to talk about that will be hard to ignore that you'll be asking a question about, and it's what are, in the beginning of Genesis 6, what are the sons of God and the Nephilim? Who are they? Because it sounds weird to read a passage of the Bible and say, we're angels uh, having sex with women. And there are, I, I want to quickly uh, recommend you to a video that you can find on YouTube. If you if you search on YouTube, Genesis 6, who were the sons of God, there will be a video with like 2.5 million views from Southern Seminary. And this guy does a great job of explaining it. But in short, essentially you have two groups of people, the sons of God and the Nephilim. And they are two separate groups of people. It says the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives, any they chose. And then it says, another sentence, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward 
when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. And they were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So there are two groups of people, the sons of God and the Nephilim, and they're not the same. The sons of God are angelic beings, angels as you might understand them. Uh, but these angels left heaven and came down to earth. If you want to read a reference of, of how you might know this, Jude verses 6 and 7 uh, says, Jude is talking about angels left their proper dwelling place and engaged in sexual perversion. And so what Moses is saying here is he's saying uh, to the writers who knew of these mythological characters, I'll give you an example, Gilgamesh is one of them. He wants his readers to know that these men that you've heard myths about, these are not demigods, sons, half-born sons of angels and half-human, uh, uh, like Gilgamesh you might have heard. He wants to demythologize uh, them. So he says the sons of God who were angels, they did come and they did sleep with women and they did have kids. But he says that the Nephilim, who were, were these... Uh, these characters of old were on earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. And so what he wants to say is the Nephilim were here before and after the sons of God did this sexual perversion with uh, the daughters of man. And so he's saying these are two separate groups of people and he wants his readers to know that the Nephilim are th these heroes of old, these mythological figures that they've heard about in history. Uh, he doesn't say who they are because the reader would know. He wants you to know that these are not the result of human and angel offspring. These were they didn't have some kind of demigod powers. He wants to turn it. Uh, uh, he he wants them to know that these Nephilim were there before the angels did what they did. So I would encourage you to go watch that video on YouTube. It explains it in great depth with uh, a great. With, with a great Hebrew scholar there. Uh, and, and so watch that and it will explain it more. It is a difficult text. And uh, I encourage if you have any uh, questions to, to do some research more uh, about that. So uh, this is a longer episode, but don't forget the cause of the flood, the covenant in the flood, the coming of the flood and the consequence of the flood. That's what you're going to encounter today. And thanks for joining us on the preview.